And this is a word specifically to slaves, to bond servants, as it says in the ESV. And as you're turning there, maybe one of the definitions in the back of your mind is something similar to what John Goldingay says. He says, a slave has no rights and slave owners may assume they are free to do with the slave as they wish and to require of the slave whatever they wish. Oftentimes we have this kind of definition in the back of our minds and it clouds our interpretation of passages like this. It's typically unhelpful because in addition to there being contextual differences of slavery from the first century and the 19th century, it also makes the focus far too narrow of a passage like this. Because although the institution of slavery is no longer applicable, at least in our context, much of the instruction here applies to any relationship between an inferior and a superior. Uh, Employer, employee, parent-child, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 127, elaborates on this, thinking in terms of the fifth commandment, how we are to honor our mother and father. And it's generally true that we have an aversion towards any kind of submission to authority, whether that be in your home, in the workplace, or in the state, right, towards the government. All depends on who's in leadership, oftentimes for us, right? And, and so household codes spend most of their time correcting these tendencies, right? These household codes, these instructions to fathers, mothers. This is ultimately what Paul is doing here for Titus, giving instruction to the older men in the church, the older women, then the younger women, the younger men, those who are teachers, and finally to bond servants here. This is another type of a household code. He's speaking to everyone within the family. Right? And, and, and generally, we, we don't like to be told to submit. That's a bad word in our day and age. But I think if you could summarize these few verses in a sentence, it would be this, that the beauty of the gospel is displayed by your consistent submission to authority. The beauty of the gospel is displayed by your consistent submission to authority. Remember, just as a context, before we come to this passage, Paul has been instructing Titus to establish godly leadership in the church. That leadership was to teach sound doctrine, which was to result in sound living. And so chapter 2, he begins talking about the characteristics of the people of God, the kinds of traits we should possess. And he comes to the end And he begins to speak directly to the servants of the household. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this important passage. We don't want to gloss over it. We don't want to take this information lightly, but we want to apply it to our hearts. We want to be transformed by this truth. And Lord, we want to glorify you in the way we understand it. And so give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are softened to this truth that we would 
be transformed by it. May you be glorified in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, let me begin here with a brief comparison, right? Because I've already mentioned that 19th century slavery is not first century slavery. They're not, they're not the same. There are many differences. However, there are some similarities. And roughly 25% of the population at the time Paul is writing this letter would have been considered domestic servants. So the instruction that he's giving here is not to a small portion of the population. Some of the differences. One, it's not determined by race. It wasn't one particular ethnic group that he was speaking about here. Uh, and there were rules that regulated the industry a little more closely and tightly than anything in the 19th century. Uh, and typically, at this time, servants would have been paid. It would have been minimal, but there was at least a possibility of manumission, of, of the release, of, of being able to buy back, buy yourself out of slavery. That would have been possible. And, and the jobs that slaves typically did at this time were, were diverse. Some of them were even doctors. Some were teachers, managers, musicians, artisans. They were doing work with their hands, building building things. So, so it's not your typical picture, necessarily, of what a slave would, would do. However, it wasn't all pristine. It wasn't all clean. Right? There were similarities. In other words, it wasn't a voluntary thing at this point. Uh, most were born into it. Some were captured during war or kidnapped and forced into slavery. Uh, most really did not have hope of ever earning their freedom. Uh, many, though there were various jobs, many of them did what was miserable work, uh, working in mines. Uh, Thomas Schreiner says slaves had no legal rights and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them both physically and sexually. And so it's not a pretty picture by any means. Right? However, there's nothing like this in the Old Testament where you have slavery described in the Old Testament where it could no, you could have a slave for no more than six years. On the seventh year, you would have had to release them. In fact, it was on a, a regular time schedule, so there was a year of jubilee that would take place. Right? And, and if, you, if you got that slave within that period of time, you may only have them for a few years before you would have to release them. Whether they could buy their freedom or not, you were required to release them. Um, and it was a means of, of sort of paying back debts that you owed to an individual. Uh, in fact, there were rules of hospitality that would be shown to a, a servant in the household so that you would treat them as if they were a foreigner in, in terms of being gracious to them and taking care of them. So the instruction you have in Scripture is, is vastly different 
Right? Slavery is never commended in Scripture. And in fact, since the gospel instructs everyone, there are significant implications for Christians, both as masters and as slaves, that, that have to be considered, and I think inevitably led to the abolition of slavery. Right, so here, Paul is only addressing servants. In other places, he addresses masters, and in all cases, it was they were to act in such a way that they were treating each other in a way that would honor God. Okay, so no matter whether you were a slave or a master, all parties were to honor God in the way that they treated one another. John Murray writes, there are few things more distasteful to modern man than subjection to authority and the demand for obedience to authority. That's not hard to agree with, right? We have that same feeling and thought in our, in our mind, but, but even as we look out into culture, we, we see that, a distaste for anything that smacks of authority, that speaks of submission, and submission has been particularly important from the beginning of creation. Have you ever wondered why submission is so challenging? Why it's so difficult for people to accept? It hasn't always been that way. God created Adam with the responsibility to work and to keep the garden, to serve. And, so, and, and as Eve was... Was, was created from his side, they would have served together alongside one another, working and keeping the garden as God had instructed them. And this was in itself worship for them. In fact, if you look at Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, you see the same language. Now, in our English translation, it's, tra it's translated differently, but in the Hebrew, it's the same words, the same verbs of work and keep are found, but they apply to the priests. So listen to this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So you see the same verbs used there, speaking of guarding and ministering. And so in a very true sense, what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden was worshiping right through their work the same way that the priests were facilitating worship for the people of God. Before the congregation, guarding their act of worship. Right? But what happened with Adam and Eve? What, what broke this pattern of, or this connection between work and worship? Well, they began to serve a different master. They allowed the serpent to become their master. Right? And it destroyed their relationship, first of all with God, but also with one another, so that they hid themselves from God and even began to hide their nakedness from one another. And that ultimately brought a curse upon their work and their service, so that Adam would work the ground by the sweat of his brow. 
would no longer yield fruit and, and crops willingly, but he would have to strain at the work. It became a curse. The fall brought corruption into the workplace. And so because of the fall, we have manipulation. We have abuses of authority. And we have what we see ultimately resulting in the slavery of mankind. So what does submission involve? Well, he goes on in verse the second half of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10, to describe some ways that we could submit. Right? So to submit to your master, but you're also to please your master. And there's two positive commands that, are, that bracket a, a two negative commands in this section. First of all, you're to aim to satisfy your master. This is to be well-pleasing. Not argumentative, so not talking back, not grumbling and complaining as you do your work. Not pilfering either. So this is the language of, of stealing, of embezzling. In fact, it's, it's the same language that's used to apply to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. As they held back some of the proceeds of the sale of their home and tried to give it as a, as a gift to the church, but wanting to represent the generosity or at least mimic the generosity of Barnabas, but they were false. It was a false sign of, of generosity. In fact, it's described as embezzling or stealing from the church in the way they held back their proceeds. Okay, so a servant is not to, is not to be like that. They're not to steal from their master. Instead, his work should reflect a faithfulness, a fidelity to his master. So why no criticism of slavery here? If it, if it included the abuses that we read, that Schreiner described, why don't we see Paul challenging it forcefully here? I think, I think that's something we have to address. And Christians oftentimes make up for what's lacking here, right? They, they call, even pastors call the church to become social justice warriors. Right, but we don't see that kind of command here. We don't see that kind of charge given from Paul here. Christians are really not called ultimately to be social revolutionaries, right, to kind of transform the culture. That's, that's a noble challenge and task, but you don't find that to be the primary goal or purpose of the New Testament church. Right? We're to adorn the gospel. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're to allow the, the gospel to have a deep impact in our own hearts so that we ourselves are radically transformed. And when we go into the workplace, when we go back into our neighborhoods, when we gather with family and friends, they see something different and radically changed about our character and about we, the way we live our lives. And because of that, it's very possible that communities can be transformed. But the purpose is not to go out and correct every injustice that we see. 
right? The, the church's task, the church's purpose is to proclaim the gospel unashamedly. And so I'm not suggesting that Paul agreed with slavery. Clearly, when he was writing to Philemon, who um, had his own slave, Onesimus, run away, right, which typically would have been received, if, if he came back to his master at all, he would have been received back with much beating and, and abuse. Paul encourages him instead to receive him as a brother. So, so one, he's encouraging Onesimus to return to his believing master and is encouraging his believing master to receive his servant as a brother, no longer as a slave or a servant. And in fact, he encourages him and challenges him to send him back to Paul because he's an encouragement. Onesimus has been a blessing to him. And so there's cases here where we could say Paul was discouraging and subtly breaking down um, what slavery had done in society. But here, he simply wants servants to be well-pleasing to their masters, to submit to them, to not be argumentative, to not steal from them, but to show all good faith because it would beautify the gospel that they believed. All right, so Paul didn't agree with slavery, and in fact, the New Testament never commends or endorses the institution of slavery. The institution of marriage is commended because it was ordained by God. Slavery was not. And so, if social justice was the church's primary purpose, then passages like this would make little sense. Right, we would be scratching our, our heads about this because Paul really missed an opportunity to, to call the church to be radically different, right? To, to call bond servants to flee from their slavery. But rather than calling for the end of slavery, he challenged them to adorn the gospel by their attitude and by the way they act by their exemplary service. And so that is the challenge for us as believers to seek to adorn the gospel with a submissive and a well-pleasing demeanor to those whom God has placed in authority over us. And I think this applies to all of us in one way or another. Many of us would rather fume in anger with an argumentative attitude than to consider how we might adorn the gospel at work or in our homes, or with our neighbors. But here, wherever there's a, an authority figure that God has placed in our lives, including government authorities, we are to be seeking to be exemplary in the way that we submit. It can be a lot easier to think that this is all to be kept separate, right? To think that our work life is separate from our Christianity. But the Reformed faith has always promoted a very robust theology of vocation, right? That your work is your calling. That really, once we are saved, once, once we have submitted under, under Christ as our Lord, that we're trying to find ways of returning to Eden, where work can be worship once again, where the things that we do can bring glory to God. 
So, how can we adorn the gospel? Now, there's a, there's a joke that you pastors hear oftentimes when they're studying about preaching and learning how to, to structure sermons. There's this joke about a, a pastor who, who had 10 reasons for pedo-baptism, right? Or you can insert any doctrine in that place. Right? He gives 10 reasons in his sermon. He finds a text that fits his desire to give 10 reasons for pedo-baptism, and then he concludes with a closing word on the gospel. And maybe this structure feels a little bit like that, talking about masters, and then now here's a little word on adorning the gospel. All right, that's, that's not what this is about. And many sermons, unfortunately, have been structured that way. But the truth is, your ability to submit in everything to the authorities God has given you has a lot to do with the gospel. Your submission, especially in difficult circumstances, displays the impact of the grace of God in your life. And so the gospel is described here as the doctrine of God our Savior, the teaching of God our Savior. We were in such a state of hopelessness that we needed a rescuer. We needed someone to come and save us out of our depravity. And so Charles Spurgeon speaks of Jesus as the author, the substance, and the object of this gospel. It's all about Christ. It's about our relationship with him. He goes on to say, you can never think too much of this great salvation. When you desire it, prize it as a beggar might prize gold. When you have it, grasp it as the pearl of great price. We have indeed a great salvation. And so the gospel has a tremendous impact upon us. We beautify that gospel that message of salvation and grace and mercy by maintaining a submissive and well-pleasing manner towards our superiors. Why? Well, because the gospel is about trusting in the work of a sovereign God, right? Who not only sent his son to bear the curse of our obedient service, to live a life of obedience that we could not live perfectly, but he also sent his son to bear the wrath of our disobedience, the disobedience and the the wrath that our disobedience deserved. He came to bear that wrath. So he bears the, the curse that the fall brought upon our work, and he bears the wrath of our disobedience in our place. Therefore, when we serve anyone that God has placed over us, it is as if we are serving, ultimately, the God who placed him there. Right? He is the one who ultimately receives our work as worship. And so we do all things as if we are submitting to and pleasing him, our Heavenly Father. So that's why submitting to your master And pleasing your master adorns the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is displayed by your consistent submission to authority. And listen to Augustine on this. I love what Augustine says. He says, The apostolic teaching assumes the placement of the master above the servant and the slave beneath the master. But Christ has given the same price for each of them. 
It wasn't as if the master required a little less blood to be shed of our Savior. No, the, the same amount had to be shed for any one of us to be saved, no matter what status we hold in this world. And although there are parallels to this relationship, to all inferior and superior relationships, I think it's relevant to speak to that from this text. We shouldn't miss the significant truth that the lowest people in this society that Paul is writing to here are capable of not only being reached by the gospel, but of being, of bringing a greater beauty to the display of the gospel by their transformed character. Right, so it's, it's something to be received as a gift, but it's also a responsibility to bear. And all of us are invited into that same kind of covenantal relationship. Right, and so let us respond to that truth wholeheartedly now as we pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this word it, it can 